Okay, this is going to make me sound really old and lame. <laughs> is it Nas or is it like Naz? That's <laughs> Naz, yeah, yeah, Naz. Mm-hmm. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. So today's episode is a little different. Today's guest is actually a friend of mine. And the moment I met her, I immediately saw this light, right? I thought she was the warmest, kindest person in the universe. Today's guest is Bev Gooden. She's a domestic abuse activist, and she's the founder of the Why I Stayed hashtag, which gives a safe space for women online who've been victims of domestic abuse to talk about their experience. Her empathy and passion for this issue is just palpable. And having that empathy is what makes her the perfect advocate. So this episode is a little different because it has a conversational tone. There's lots of laughing and giggling and, you know, kind of palling around, just like listening to two girlfriends just chatting over the phone. Anyhow, we talk about celebrities who've been caught up in domestic abuse situations and their abusers like Nas and R. Kelly and, of course, Trump. So I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Here is my conversation with Bev Gooden. Bev Gooden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I just want to say that I'm so happy to talk to you because we met in D.C. um, last month. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At the American Women's Party Conference. And I remember talking to you at breakfast and I was just thinking like, you know, she's the warmest, nicest person. Oh my goodness. You know, and I was just like (laughs) so happy because we bonded over hair. Over hair, which I don't have anymore. <laughs> I cut all of my hair off. I it's know. So liberating. How, and so, how is it? How has it been so far? I love it. Like, I didn't. I was trying to figure out why I didn't do it years ago when she was shaving. So, I'm completely bald. So, when she was shaving all my hair off, and I just saw my features, I don't know. I feel like it makes my feet, it makes my features stand out in a way that. I haven't even really seen before. Yeah. My ears. Oh my goodness. I have ears. They're there. You can, <laughs> you can see them in the mirror. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. But you know, no hair is a look like is hair, right? Like no hair is a hair mm-hmm. look, right? Mm-hmm. You know? So, mm-hmm. but I knew when I met you, when we were talking about it, I knew you could pull it off. I just felt. Did it. you? I, no, you didn't. I, this is, okay. All right. <laughs> just I was, kidding. I was, I was hoping. Cause it, it, <laughs> <laughs> Me too, girl, because I was like, oh, if this does not look good, I'm about to be walking around here <laughs> looking a mess. But I, I'm so happy it worked out because there is kind of no going back. Yeah. Well, <laughs> from from all. well you could go. You could go back. But, you know, uh, you it didn't grow so fast. Yeah. Um, I had a dusting of hair. <laughs> two days later and then like by a week it was a full headache and I'm like you know what I did not go bald to have hair in a week this is expensive I was thinking about to save so much money by not having any hair and now I have to go to the barber once a week and I'm just like this is not what I planned for my life but it's it's 98 today in DC I think so I appreciate not having yeah. hair you know it's fun. I've, I've never <laughs> I've never heard the phrase dusting of hair it's like it's like snow <laughs> it's like it's snowed <laughs> snowed hair <laughs> it's snowed away <laughs> it was it was like a just a gentle dusting of, of hair not full hair but you could see that there were sprouts it was trying to sprout up and I was like really two days come on <laughs> I'm thinking like they're bald. People who go bald, they're bald for like weeks, and then maybe once a month they get it. No. That's fine. Well, you look good. But yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Thank you. So I have to say, when I was talking to you at the conference, I did not. It took me a minute to realize who I was talking to. After a while, and I realized that you were on the panel and you were telling yes. your story about the why I stayed hashtag, and I was kind of blown away because you were so approachable and so warm. And I was like, oh, she did that. She did the why I stayed hashtag. <laughs> Man. <laughs> So, and can, so can you just talk a bit about the hashtag? And, you know, it, it started after the footage of Ray Rice punching his fiance at the time. Cool. So what was it about that instance of domestic abuse that moved you so much? Uh, several things. You know, that was 2014, yeah. I believe, um, the summer or early fall of 2014. And at that time, I had left my own abusive marriage it had been about four years. So when I left my marriage, I left in complete silence. Like I did not 
tell anyone other than, you know, the necessary parties, my parents, my sister, my brother, everyone knew I had gotten divorced, but no one knew right. why, you know, it wasn't something that I, I, I was a public advocate for in any way. I didn't talk about it. I did a lot of donating to different domestic violence organizations and, you know, I would post anonymous blog posts, things like that. I was back in the, the end yeah. of the blogging days, um, kind of, but post those. And I, and that was it. Like, I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. I didn't feel comfortable um, expressing anything about it. It just happened. It was over. I was out of it. So I remember that day that the story was released by TMZ. And along with the story, there was a video. And the video was of him punching his fiance in an elevator and then dragging her out of the elevator. And so TMZ released the video. It was a much different time on Twitter. It was kind of in between I got on Twitter in 2010, like right after I left my ex-husband, and it was all just kind of fun and jokes. Then no, no one really yeah. knew each other. We were just kind of all talking into the void. And um, by 2014, it, it was still sort of the same, but I think more people were coming over to Twitter from Facebook or wherever they were before. And it was there was a larger audience there. There were more people there than there were before. I wouldn't say that I had a, a large following. I had maybe a few hundred people followed me, not even in the realm of, you know, what some activists have today. And so I was just, you know, there talking and talking about coffee, probably nothing, <laughs> nothing important. Just talking about morning coffee. The video comes out and then within minutes, almost immediately, within minutes, people were asking, why would she stay with him? Yeah. And it like it took no time for the conversation to turn from shock at what they were seeing to interrogating the victim. And so that happened almost immediately. Um, they weren't people that I knew. It just when I would search, you know, the name Ray Rice or Janae Rice or whatever search term was going on that day, you would see the comments. And so in that moment, I would say that I felt... Uh, Two things, really shame, knowing that I had experienced something not identical, but similar. I felt guilt, you know, that I would have to, I felt like they were asking me the question. All the people that wanted to know why would right. she stay with him after he hit her. I felt that they were, they were asking that of me also, because I was not only someone who experienced domestic violence, but I was someone who stayed. Right. You know, I feel like sometimes society will place victims in two categories. There are the victims that experience domestic violence and then it's over. And then there are the ones who stay. And those are the ones who deserve the shame or deserve some some blame for what happens next. And so I felt that shame. I felt that target. I felt responsible for answering the question. And so really without even thinking of... Uh, anything without really thinking of consequences or repercussions, not really thinking anyone would care. I just started to tweet about why I stayed and I hashtagged it why I stayed because I'm not super creative <laughs> to come up with, you know, a cute hashtag. It was just why I stayed. That's what I was talking about. And some of the reasons, um, if I can remember correctly, I, I tweeted about my pastor saying that God hates divorce when I told him that I was experiencing domestic violence. I told him my husband hit me and that, you know, you wouldn't want God to hate you. Um, that's something that someone said to me, the pastor. I talked about how I tried to escape one night and we we were poor together you know we were poor separately when we met when we were in college and then it didn't get better because we both graduated during the recession and so all we really had was a very small apartment and one way in one way out not really there was no luxury there so the only way out was the door the other way out was the balcony and so I wasn't gonna jump off the balcony but I was gonna try and run out of the door and so he saw me trying to to move toward the door and he went and he laid in front of the door and he stayed there the whole night. Oh my God. And so that's another reason why I stayed because when I thought I could leave, my exit was blocked. And so I just, I just told my reasons, not all of them by any means, but just some of them, just so that there would be a counter conversation to the conversation that was happening about Janae Rice and why would she stay with him? And so I did that. And then I just kind of left it at that. And um, 
about an hour later, I logged back onto Twitter. I was at work. I logged back onto Twitter and it was trending in the U. Why well, I say the hashtag was trending in the U.S. Now, this is 2014. Right. It wasn't, this was before any real type of women's movement online. There, there, there wasn't really the validity that's there now. There wasn't the support that's there now. This is just kind of random. Domestic violence isn't something that trended in 2014, right, you know? Right. And so when it started trending, I was kind of confused at first because I was like, surely this like, what What are people talking about? This isn't about domestic violence, right? But I clicked on the hashtag and I found just a community of survivors telling their stories it, with their faces attached to their yeah. profiles. Like, no anonymity, you know, just in the moment, just telling their reasons for staying, explaining their um, stories, just really just being open and vulnerable in a very public way to a very wide audience. And it it was shocking to me. It was really almost unbelievable because I hadn't seen anything like that before. I think when I was thinking of domestic violence back then, it was more about the people that actually work in the field day to day, you know, and they're talking about the statistics and they're, you know, putting out research and just, you know, doing advocacy. And that is was kind of limited to you going to their website to see it. They weren't really heavy and active on Twitter or social media yet. It was a different time. And so just to see a mass conversation about domestic violence, but not only domestic violence, victims being centered in, in the stories of domestic violence was just really unbelievable. It was, it was shocking. It was, um, and after I got over the shock of it, it was really encouraging. It, uh, made me feel at home. It made me feel like, um, not only was, uh, d- did someone understand what I had gone through, 100,000 yeah. people understood what I went through, and that none of us, in that moment at least, were afraid to tell our stories because other people were doing the same thing. And so I think somewhere in the realm of, of 200,000 people or so tweeted using the hashtag, which yeah. is a big number back then. And um, it was just, I mean, it was just incredible. So that was, that was that's the origin of, of why I stayed. And it just kind of went on from there. I went on Good Morning America to talk about the hashtag. And that was, that yeah, was wild. Yeah. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that picture. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so funny because I didn't, it, it was all happening so quickly. I didn't fully understand what was going on. So when they were like, hey, come, you know, come, we're going to fly to New York and you're talk on Good Morning America. I'm thinking I'm going to go on Good Morning America and I'm just going to sit behind like a desk somewhere in the corner and just kind of talk about my experience real quick. And then that's it. I did not know I was going to be on a stage with Robert Roberts and Dr. Phil. Like, I just didn't know any of that was happening. And so this is not what I should be thinking about. But I was like, I do not have on the right shoes for this. Like I had on a really nice top because I was thinking it was gonna be from the top up. But then I had some jeans, some random jeans and some like random sneakers, and I was just like, wow, I should have (laughs) dressed better for this. But but it didn't matter in the end, really, because once it was going on, Robin Roberts was so gracious. She is probably the most gracious, kind person I've ever met. Um and she just made the interview very comfortable. She let me tell the story. She let me tell my story. Um, and it was just beautiful. It was amazing. And so since then, every now and then I'll go um, talk to different groups about domestic violence. I'll talk to college students about violence, which is really where my heart is. My heart is with teens. Teens are experiencing domestic violence. Um, so it's such a high rate. Different forms of domestic violence, you know, with the rise of social media and digital violence and revenge porn. Mm. They're experiencing things that I did not experience that I did, didn't exist when I was in the relationship. So I talk to them a lot. I focus on, you know, explaining the complexities of domestic violence, um, talking about the signs and also talk about healing. I'm finding that I'm much more interested in survivor joy yeah. than I am in survivor pain. I think one of the things that is encouraging to me right now, especially with, um, Tarana right. Burke, who founded the Me Too movement, is that, she, yeah, she talks a lot about healing. You know, she talks a lot about 
how important it is to share our stories, but also how important it is to focus on self-care and how do we move forward and how do we heal and, and what does community look like? And so I think with the Why State hashtag initially, it was about a lot of victims coming together and sharing their stories and creating a community. And moving forward, it's been about, you know, speaking to each other about what are the forms of healing? You know, what does therapy look like? How do you access that? What did it mean for you to stay? How did you escape that situation? What did it look like for you moving forward? So it's kind of transformed from, I would say, like a revolt, (laughs) you know, saying, you know, here's why I stayed and you just have to deal with it to, you know, here's the exact reason why I stayed. What can we do policy-wise so that the people that have stayed, are staying, are planning to escape, can experience life differently going forward? So that's that's why I stayed. <laughs> that's a hashtag story. Wow. That's so, much, that's so much so much there. But I think one of the things that stood out to me when you said that it, it felt like they were questioning you. They were asking you why you stayed. But yeah. the interesting thing about that question and a lot of questions that people pose to women is that it's not really a question. It's rhetorical. It's a statement. They're saying, right. I don't really want to know why you stay. I think you should have left. Mm-hmm. That's what they're actually saying. Right. And I think one of the beautiful things about about what's happening now in the current women's movement is a lot of the questions that we ask women are now being questioned. You know, why are we asking women why right. they stay? Why are we asking them what they wore? Why are we asking them why did she go with him? All of these questions are coming to light. Like, we should not be asking these questions, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we could just ask these questions and it was just, oh, it's just a question. Right? But it's not just a question, right? It's a, it's a statement. Right. It is. It's a statement. It's yeah. almost like an accusation. You know, I think, you know, we, when we think about uh, why people even ask, why would you stay? Like you said, it's a statement. Right. They're not, they don't really want to know. And, you know, that's something that I've discovered over the past four years since the hashtag started. People don't really want to know why you stay. They don't really care why you stay. They want you to know that they oppose your decision. Yes, that's all. exactly. <laughs> yeah, we disapprove. We right. want to know that we think that you are, you know, whatever. Right. You know, and, and so talking about your Good Morning America appearance, you have that photo and you look good. Thank you. Have you. <laughs> As the background to your, to, I didn't even notice your shoes. I'm going to go and I'm going to look at your shoes. Oh now. yeah, it's, it's tragic. <laughs> I had no idea. I was like, well, you know, we're here now with this with these shoes. These are the only shoes I had. So um, but you've got that photo and you've got this tweet pinned to your page. And when I saw that tweet, it was, you know, really moving to me about Kellis, mm-hmm. who was married to Nas. And, you know, he just had an album that came out. But she's given, you know, lots of interviews and testimonies about her experience with him being in this abusive yeah. situations, right? And yeah. and your tweet says that, you know, she kept saying, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. weak. So I was listening to this interview with her. And not only does she say, you know, I'm not weak, she also added, and I think a lot of people miss this, she goes, I'm not a saint. Mm. I hit him too. And we hit each other. Yeah. That just broke my heart because, you know, we have so much internalized guilt and internalized pain over this. All of the questions that we've been asked that she couldn't even accept the empathy that was being given to her. She had had to add, oh, well, I did some stuff too. I'm not a saint. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, this is your moment. I want women to be able to sit in this moment and say, listen, none of this is your fault. You know, and this isn't a criticism of Kellis, right? It's a criticism of a culture that tells women that they have some responsibility in the pain that they endure, you know, via domestic abuse situations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I noticed her. I didn't, you just saying it right now, the full quote, I didn't hear all of that, but I did hear her say, I hit him too. And I think a lot of times, People will hold on to, even victims, I think we internalize a lot. We internalize a lot of what abusers tell us. We internalize a lot of what society tell us, that there's never an actual abuser, that two people are abusive. And most of the time, you know, those sort of things, most of the time they're hitting each other. And that's actually a common myth in domestic violence. It's called mutual abuse myth. And the fact is that domestic violence experts will tell you there is almost always a predominant aggressor. That is the person who initiates the violence. That is the person who's responsible for introducing violence into an argument, into a home, whatever that is. So even if she hit him back, even if she hit him in response, that still does not make her responsible for the abuse. And so I think that a lot of times, I know for me back when I never hit my ex-husband back, I never hit him back. I was always afraid to hit him back, but I used to internalize a lot. I would say, well, I started the argument that ended 
did and me getting hit. And if I would have just done what he asked me to do, it would have never ended that way. So I was even, I was blaming myself for starting the argument that it resulted in abuse. And looking back on that, that, I mean, that's not valid. This makes sense. But I think, you know, to your point, we internalize so much. I think we even internalize judgment. You know, because I, I just imagine Khalees being in a place where, you know, she's being abused and she's been abused and she's been hit. and He's fought her and he's punched her and he's cheated on her as well. And all these things are going on. And then there are people in her life, especially in the industry that she was in, the music industry, that their whole purpose in life is to protect Nas. Right? Yeah. Their whole goal is to protect him and his reputation to make sure he's OK. So even if she told someone a publicist, a manager, a producer, anyone, you know, he did this to me. Well, well, what did you do? Did you provoke him? Yeah. You know, did you, what were you, how was your tone? As if any of those things matter, the fact that she was abused. And so I think, you know, it's possible that she internalized that as well. When I, 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 there were a few people that I told about the abuse before I got out of it. I mentioned one was my pastor. Yeah. I told uh, someone else as well. And even they were like, well, you need to think of ways to get him not to hit you. You need to be. Someone said it to me. You need to think of ways to get him not to hit you. And it's it's so unbelievable. It's just stupid. It's unbelievable. It's so unbelievable. It's and so they were like, well, you know, can you speak to him in a better way? Can you just create peace in your home? You know, he doesn't feel the need to be violent. It was still on me. It was still on me. So I imagine Khalees carries a lot of guilt. You know, carries a lot of blame. People have attributed blame to her. And even if she, you know, hit him, or even if she was abusive as well. Well, because that's possible too, men are abused as well. But even if that's the case, whenever he hit her, whenever he initiated violence, he was then the abuser, and that's not her responsibility. That's not her fault. She has no fault there. And I think a lot of victims find fault in themselves because we're told that there is fault in us, especially if we're doing something that's anti society, if we're doing something like staying. Because can we stay with him just like I stayed with my ex husband? They were staying there. And so to society, she's automatically responsible because she could have left, quote unquote. You know, you could have walked out the door. You could have been gone. You could have talked to him differently. You could have not hit him back. You could have, could have, could have yeah. done all these things. So surely you're also responsible because it wouldn't have happened again if you weren't there. These are all things that we're told. And it's so easy to internalize that. It's easy to internalize that because you already are in pain. You're already in emotional turmoil and you're already thinking of ways to get out of the abuse, whether it's the abuse ending, whether it's you having to leave, whatever that looks like, you're already thinking of ways. And someone's telling you, well, the way to get it to stop is to behave differently. You internalize that. You think, okay, if I just act differently, it'll stop. And it never does because it's not our fault. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you were, and I just want to put this on the table because it really bothers me when people bring this up, not you specifically, but when people bring up, oh, well, you know, maybe she did hit him or, you know, men can be abused too. Sure. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't the dynamic here. Like, I don't think anybody believes that, you know, that they were equally aggressive in this case. That was Mm -hmm. not the dynamic here. And, you know, 99.999% of the time in an abusive relationship, when a man gets hit or hurt, it's because the woman's probably trying to protect herself, right? Defend herself. In those 0.00001% cases where that's not the case, you know, we can talk about that separately. Right. You know, it doesn't even need to be in the conversation (laughs) usually. And I don't want to be dismissive of the men who've experienced domestic violence, right? Like I know those statistics and numbers are out there, but when a woman is talking about her domestic abuse situation, that's just not the right moment to talk about what she may have done. No, definitely. I think one of the other frustrating things about, and and I hear a lot from men's rights activists, unfortunately, (laughs) sadly, sadly, I hear a lot from men's rights activists, but the other thing that frustrates me about that is when they say, well, men men experience violence just as much as women. And that's absolutely not true. I mean, the that's statistics, not even close to being true. research doesn't bear that out. The statistics don't bear that out. Sure. I mean, yes, it's one in three women and one in six men. So no one in their right mind is saying that men don't experience violence. What we're saying is that women experience violence at higher rates. Women are the ones that are more vulnerable to domestic violence, to intimate partner violence. It is women who are experiencing these things at rates that call for something like the Violence Against Women Act. Like that's specifically yeah. for women. It says women because you know right, it's even right. in the name. 
it's in the name. And so I think that's one of the frustrating things when I hear that a lot from men specifically who just want, if there's no better way to say it, but they just want to regain the upper hand. Yeah. You know, they just want control of the situation. It's, well, we we experiencing it too. Yes, we know, obviously. Obviously you do. And I'm sorry that you do, if you have. But let's focus on the fact that what we're talking about here now is women, because that is the community that's most at risk. And, you know, not to even break it down even further into women of color, Native American women, Aboriginal women, Black women. It's an epidemic. And I think that the beautiful thing about the moment that we're in now is I think that people are paying more attention to the fact that a lot of this happens quietly. A lot of it happens in silence. I don't think the prevailing notion of it has changed. Even Jeff Sessions said something like, well, it's a private issue. It's a private matter. I think that's still out there. But I think more and more as social media picks up, as we have more conversations about it, that we're going to start realizing that it's much more than a private matter. In fact, it's a community issue. In fact, it's not a private matter. In fact, if someone is being abused in your neighborhood, that's a community matter. I think we're starting to look at it like that more. So I'm really hopeful. So I wanted to talk about women of color in this because one of the things that's been coming up now with intersectionality and the women's movement is, you know, women of color being kind of left out of the conversation. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we're talking about Nas and, you know, that just brings to mind Chris Brown, right? (laughs) And R. Kelly and Rice. And so I guess that's, you know, celebrity. I know, celebrity and, and women of color and just, I don't know, yeah. I, I don't know where I'm going with that. But yeah, um, so in what ways do you think the conversation could be different so that it's more inclusive to women of color? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it really all boils down to race in America. Yeah. I think that um, we... Not we, I shouldn't say we, but I think that America still values women of color less. Of course. I think that it's fair to say that, too. I think that it's fair to say that whiteness is still the prevailing concern. I think even when it comes to Me Too, the fact that it was wealthy celebrity white women that hashtagged it, even though it was a black woman who had been working in the movement for a decade, It took that to make it popular. I think that says something as well. So I think that if we're going to if we're going to look at moving forward and having a larger conversation about women of color and domestic violence, black women specifically in domestic violence, we have to also have a conversation about why these stories aren't as important, why missing black girls are less important than missing white girls. You know, why we just don't talk about the Native American community at all. Their rates of domestic violence are unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's astounding the violence that they've and the sexual violence that they're facing. The fact that we don't talk about that at all. So I think it's really a question of whether or not we're ready to have a conversation, a hard conversation about race, not necessarily class, but definitely um, the value of women of color. I think for Black women specifically, I think it's the number two cause of yeah. death for Black women in its specific age range, 15 to 34, which is a huge age range. It's homicide. It's homicide at the hands of a current or former partner. I think that we can't address that until we address why there's no resources for those communities. I think it's an economic issue. It's an economic justice issue. I think um, a lot of Black women, specifically women of color, are trapped in communities by design because of their economic situations, because they can't get out of those communities for whatever reason, because of redlining, because they don't have access to housing in other places. And so they're in a constant state of being surrounded by their abusers or people who will potentially abuse them. And no one is making the path to housing easier, right? No one is making housing less expensive. There are still communities where Black people can't live, not because it's illegal for them to live there, but because it's uncomfortable for them to live there because the neighbors make it that way. You know, and so if we have communities of women, of women of color who have nowhere else to go except the community that they've always known, they have nowhere to expand to, they can't get out. How do we then protect them from the people who are in their own communities who harm them you know i don't know how to move forward there i don't know i don't really know the answer i know that it's gonna take more than money you know it's gonna it's gonna take even more than legislation it's gonna take enforcement of some sort i don't have a lot of hope 
I don't have a lot of hope that this nation will suddenly start caring about women of color. I think the only reason it has so far is because women of color have made them yeah. care about women of color. You know, the movements in our in our own communities um, have been so effective that you have so far had no choice but to pay attention to us. That hasn't made our situation easier. That hasn't decreased the rates of, of domestic violence in our community. But it, it, it moves really slowly. Uh, yeah. But it does move. I don't know that I'll live long enough to see the day where women, all women, regardless of race, are on an equal level playing field of concern. I hope that, you know, my, my children do or my grandchildren do. I hope that that happens. But I don't know. It's a really sensitive area for me because I think about it a lot and it, it, it weighs on me a lot. As a black woman, I see things like that happen and I'm like, well, why didn't they care when we said it? Yes, yes, yes. You know, yeah. or why, why why wasn't there a mass movement when we were talking yeah. about it in 2012 or in 2010 or in 1990? Why didn't the arc of justice move in our favor when we said yeah. they're killing us? You know, and then all of a sudden it takes a few tweets and, and then everything changes. And so I don't know. It, it bothers me. I think about it a lot. But I definitely think that it starts with a real, a real difficult conversation on race, on, on the value that we place on whiteness as opposed to right. color. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, all of our big social movements and all of women's issues and all of the movements around feminism and domestic violence, specifically, when you think about those words and those movements, I think that, you know, people may not say it out loud, but the default is not a woman of color. The default is the right. default is just like when you yep. say someone's been, you know, a victim of domestic violence, I think they just think, you know, white women and people just generally, right? They don't think, you know, we're just kind of yeah. psychologically, we're just kind of excluded, excluded from from the idea of being yep. victims, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it permeates in other areas. I think when we look at um Serena Williams and her story of how she was in the hospital. She had just given birth and she was having blood clots and they weren't listening yeah. to her. They didn't believe that she was experiencing the level of pain that she was experiencing. And now we know through the research and recent news reports that black women, the medical professionals, don't necessarily believe that we have the level of pain, the same level of pain as white people. Yeah. That for, <laughs> that for some reason... Our blackness makes us less susceptible to, to high levels of pain. That's that's what? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Why would that? Why 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 would we even have to research that? Why wouldn't you just see a human being in front of you suffering and understand that they have a level of pain that's unbearable and you need to treat that? So even with Serena Williams, she said she had to save her own life. She yeah. had to tell them, "No, I am in pain. This is what's going on. Help me." You, you, that is that's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> For white women, they they are believed they are considered fragile and, and lifted up. And when it comes to black women, it's like they're strong, and and the strength that just sees them through history. And it's like, no, yeah. we hurt, we have pain, and we need yeah. you to help us. So I think I think I think that the conversation has to center around that. I think it has to center around how we view black women, how we view women of color, how we view their stories and their pain and whether or not we see it as valid um, and whether or not we see it as worthy of our attention. And, and it hasn't been so yeah. far. Well, wow. I, I had blood clots. I, I actually had blood clots last year. Oh, no. And my doctor did not detect it. And I was sent home. And I, I actually had to, I just, like, it just woke something up in me. I actually had to save myself. Like, I, I drove myself to the emergency room because I thought, oh, oh my I, don't think that they're, I think they're missing something, right? And so I, I did that. And mm. anyway, that's a long other story. We can talk about that <laughs> over drinks, over drinks sometime. But oh, I, I was I'm just sorry. thinking, like, I, I was sorry. just thinking that, you know, and I love my doctor. Like, she's really, really nice. And I was just thinking that, but maybe even subconsciously, like subconsciously, she sent me home because, you know, black women are strong. You know what I mean? You know, and, and like, maybe yeah. I did it to myself yes. thinking, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. Anyway, so that's a whole other. <laughs> I mean, I feel like like you want to say, well, if they say there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with me. But then. You know, even with you, which I think is brilliant, your intuition told you something's wrong and I'm going to drive myself back, you know. But why do we have to always save ourselves? Yeah. You know how exhausting it is to always <laughs> save ourselves? Like, come on, help us here. Yeah. I don't know. So 
I want to talk about something a little nuanced, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Blackness and celebrity, right? Because I talked about Chris Brown and R. Kelly and Nas and Ray Rice, all of them, they're celebrities, right? And I tweeted Mm -hmm. something, I tweeted something a few weeks ago about, you know, the joy that Black people felt over Meghan Markle's (laughs) wedding. (laughs) And how, you know, how Black people will celebrate other Black people. Like, we just celebrate other Black people. And we're very protective, especially of our Black men, when they have celebrity. And I wonder, Mm -hmm. you know, how that plays in also protecting Black males who are celebrities, Mm. even when they are abusive, right? I mean, I don't know. That's just kind of a nuanced thing that that we do, right? And I think there's a layer of protection that we have for, I don't know, celebrities. Is that, what do you think about Mm -hmm. that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think you're right on it. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, in our community, especially in the Black community, we are told by mothers, by our fathers, by our leaders that we need to lift up these successful men because so many of them never make it, yeah. you know, or so many of them are oppressed in other ways so that when, when one of them makes it out, when they're success, that we can't tear them down. Even with Bill Cosby, you can't tear Bill Cosby down and you got to yeah. stand behind R. Kelly and, and whoever, you know. And it's all because, you know, we've experienced such oppression in so many ways for the entirety of our existence here that when any of us see like even an inkling of of success or wealth or, you know, celebrity or just the simple fact that we don't live in the neighborhoods we used to live in, it's like we have to protect that. Yeah. You know, we have to protect that person. We have to protect that man. And then we start to hear whispers, right? There's the whisper network. Then we hear, you know, he sexually assaulted someone here or he forced oral sex here or, you know, he abused his wife. I mean, abuse for black male celebrities goes way back. I mean, they were, you know, Jimi Hendrix was hitting people with bottles and psychedelic rages, you know, so it's not new. It's been there. But, you know, it's the whisper thing. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about it because we don't want to tear the black men down. But it's so dangerous because we're doing that at what cost? Cost. Yeah. You know, like the, the price is the safety of women, yeah. specifically women who are not wealthy and who are not insulated, but women who are vulnerable and who are also facing oppression in their own way. Right. You know, I don't think it's it's as innate to us, but I think it's something that we've been told we should do. We've been taught, you know, to protect the black male celebrity. We've been taught that that is, you know, those are our leaders. Those are the people that made it out. They're going to be successful and we should lift up that success. I mean, you actually rarely hear that said about the black women. Yeah. Who says that about black women celebrities? I mean, no one really. Beyonce now. I think that's happening now. You know, we protect Beyonce at all costs, as we should. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but who yeah. knows? I mean, that, that's a recent thing. You don't really hear that. And so it, may, it makes me look back on my own childhood, on my own youth, and think of all the people who I was taught that we need to care about and protect and lift up. And they were all black men. They were all black yeah. male celebrities. They weren't black women. They weren't the, you know, the Josephine Bakers. They weren't the Ella Fitzgeralds. Who, we know they were being abused in jazz yeah. clubs, but we weren't told to protect them. We weren't told to lift yeah. them up. You know, it wasn't even a Felicia Rashad. <laughs> yeah. we, we were more worried about Bill Cosby. It wasn't even her that we were protecting, you know? So I, I think it's an issue. I think that what gives me hope about that, though, we're not standing yeah. for that anymore. That more and more people, women are leading the charge against people like R. Kelly, even if, you know, the rest of society and the music industry and whoever is not really on on board yet i think that since we're so vocal about them now we're not going away we're not going to forget that it happened and we don't believe in the whisper network anymore we're being loud about it i think that's going to change r kelly's still out there touring mm-hmm. and singing <laughs> but i think his he's i think he's yeah. on the clock like i think his time is limited and that's due to the work of black women who have been organizing and speaking out for for a decade yeah. about that so but yeah i think it's definitely an issue in the black community i think that it's one that can change though I think as older generations leave us and, you know, maybe aren't as vocal anymore, newer generations, our generations, generations that will come after us are going to start being louder about what we will and won't accept. And one of the things we won't accept are the R. Kelly's and the Bill Cosby's. That's not happening anymore. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah. You just made me think about protecting Black women or lifting them up, right? And I think that when we do talk about protection in relation to Black women, 
we talk about them protecting us, right? Like they, take, mm. you know, they take on this role of being, you know, maternal, you know, like Oprah and, and protecting us. That's but, so you good. know, but like yeah. when the tables are turned and we need protection, everybody scatters. Scatters. <laughs> <laughs> like, where, where are you? Where, <laughs> we need you to protect us. I mean, I, I, I'm off of Twitter for a little while because of an incident. But I, before I left, I saw someone tweet about the fact that, so Little Kim, who is a rapper, if, you, if the yeah. audience doesn't know, <laughs> don't want to make assumptions about their hip-hop knowledge. But Lil' Kim is a rapper, and she's had a lot of cosmetic surgery, just to the point where she does not even look like the person that she once was. Well, I saw a tweet the other day that was explaining that she said that the reason why she's had so many of them is because a lot of them were reconstructive, because she's been in several abusive relationships, oh. and she's had her nose broken, and she's had her face split, and just several different things have happened to her as a result of being abused. And so she's had all these surgeries and someone said really poignantly that a lot of us were so focused on making jokes about her appearance that we didn't hear her say, help me. Yeah. You know, that we didn't even hear her say I'm being abused. And the reason this is happening is because my face is split open, you know? And so that's someone, you know, that's someone who needed help that, and just imagine how many people knew because it's not like little Kim was, you know, living in a bubble. Yeah. You know, people knew, people could see that she was getting her nose broken by her partners. They knew that she was getting hurt by them. And I mean, there was no mass movement to protect her like there has been to protect R. Kelly. Yeah. Well, and he's the perpetrator. No, no, you're, you know, I didn't even, I, I, this is new to me. I did not know that. You're right. I didn't know either. I didn't know. Yeah. Mm-mm. But I mean, that's the point. Like we should have known because someone should have been loud about protecting her. You know, it shouldn't just be, you know, a week ago that I found out that Lil' Kim had been in all these abusive relationships and had all this reconstructive surgery because of them. Who dropped the ball there? Who didn't let us know that we should be advocating for her? Who wasn't loud about protecting her? Yeah. When we're loud about, we're still loud about protecting us. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we're loud about Chris Brown still, 10 years later, talking about protecting Chris Brown. And we didn't even hear that we should be protecting a little Kim. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah, you know, there's just so much there. Because I I wanted to talk about, and this is not specifically about Black women. When you said we were so focused on making fun of her. Do you remember when Melania disappeared a few weeks ago? Yes. And so, you know, there are all of these tweets about, you know, where is Melania? And, you know, they were kind of making it into a joke, right? Hmm. Whenever anyone would confront someone who would joke about where is Melania, you know, they would say, oh, we're really concerned because, you know, Trump has a history of abuse, which is which is true. But, you know, I mean, were they really concerned? I mean, I really doubt anyone who who said that. And, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're a celebrity or you're not, if you're conservative or you're not. Yeah. You know, women who were potentially in abusive relationships, they all kind of deserve the space, the space that your hashtag has given women. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was just so angry over, you know, right. these repeated tweets about where is Melania? Where's Melania? She had just had kidney surgery. You know, she's probably. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah, she, well, that's, oh. what, that's what she said. She said that she had, okay. you know, kidney surgery. I don't know if that's true or not. People were alluding to the fact that he might have hit her or, you know, there might have been some domestic abuse there. But the fact is, is that people were not kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And even she deserves the space yeah. to be wherever she needs to be to deal with this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, so. because who knows what's happening in you know, her marriage? Who knows what's happening in her home? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, if Trump yeah. can be emotionally abusive to an entire nation, surely he could be to his wife. Yeah. Because that's what he is to us. He's yeah. a gaslighter. Yeah. He's abusive. He is literally um trapping children you know in yeah. i mean he is responsible for so many terrible things i think you're absolutely right i mean we do have to give her that space it's frightening i mean when i think about him as the president when i think about his policies when i think about his tweets i think about his words when i think about his existence when i think about the fact that he was elected even though he had a very public history of abusing women you know it makes me believe that anything is possible in his home because he's made anything possible for us yeah and so we have to i think really be careful about what we say about her aside from her political views if she's complicit in you know harming a nation that's a separate issue than whether or not she's 
she's experiencing anything in our home. And I think we do have to give her space to work through that. Yeah, but people conflate that. So I had a story for you, and I don't know if you have any comments around this, and sorry I'm jumping around, about Chris Brown. So years ago, Mm. my nieces were teenagers, right? And Chris Brown was coming to town. And that was right after those pictures of Rihanna became public. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, being the old feminist that I am, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Wagging my finger. And, you know, saying, I can't believe you're going to go to Chris Brown. Do you know what he's done? And they looked at me like, you old lady. <laughs> Did they? <laughs> they were like, we're going to see Chris Brown. He's cute. And I was like, oh. You know, and I was just thinking, like, it's so sad because, you know, these women, like you said, teenagers are victims of domestic violence. Or how can we get them to not see that, you know, that, that feminism and, you know, not being a victim of abuse and speaking up is not just, you know, for old feminists, right? Like, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. how can we get to them? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I talk to college students, specifically, a lot of them are 18, 19, fresh out of high school, fresh in, you know, a new world from home. And they really care, you know, much more than I thought they would about preventing domestic violence. I think they've seen a lot of violence already as a team. And so, but at the same time, they're conflicted because a lot of the people who are violent are their friends. Yeah, That's what I run into. I run into a lot of teens who are friends with someone who is abusive and they don't want to stop being their friend, but they don't want they don't want the person to be abused either. And so they just kind of are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They just don't know what to do. And so I don't I don't know how we get them to understand that it's a really serious issue that they should, you know, take part in advocating against. But I do know that they recognize it and they're experiencing like an internal conflict. And I think that has a lot to do with youth. I, I mean, I'm 35, so I am pretty... <laughs> pretty set in my ways so, <laughs> you know so if, if someone is abusive that's a deal breaker for me I don't care what your art form is if it's music that I used to like whether it's you know painting or whether you're a spokesperson I mean, an athlete I don't care it doesn't matter I'm not supporting you anymore when it comes to teens they they don't make that judgment that quickly you know it's, yeah. it's like well maybe they're gonna change and then maybe next year it'll be fine and then but I really like the beat <laughs> you know just, yeah, it's kind exactly. of just anything and I think you know the more that they grow um that'll change I think it's just gonna come with you know more life experience more wisdom more age but I think for us as people who are older and who are associated with teens or responsible for teens or family members of teens it's gonna take us you know, constantly interrogating that, not in a, you know, in a mean way, not really in sit down interrogate, but asking questions when you hear them say something like, well, I still like the music and, you know, it's, it's fine because he didn't hurt me. So it's, it's okay. You know, asking questions about that. Well, well, why is the music more important than the issue, you know, and then having them answer that for themselves and explore that for themselves or saying, you know, you said he didn't hurt you, but he hurt someone. Like, how do you feel about community responsibility? How do you feel, you know, about supporting someone who is capable of this violence? You know, then having them explore that and having them think about that and having them work through that. I think there's value, you know, in in, in letting them have that open space to work through whatever the issue is. And I find it to be really helpful when I talk with, with teens or with college students because they're, they're wondering, you know, they're asking questions, they're growing, they're thinking, they're trying to figure out life and you know along with that their majors (laughs) you know what they're going to do when they graduate and like all these things going on inside of them and I think just giving them maybe one more thing to think about one more thing to consider is good I think it's helpful yeah you know I just had a thought too it it could be possibly in the way that we Mm -hmm. frame it right what we even call it we call it domestic abuse Mm -hmm. it just sounds so stodgy right I mean it's, It's, it's an old term yeah domesticated, you know, your, your mm-hmm. domain, right? And they think, you know, all that happens in marriages. We're not married. I mean, that I think that's what's conjured up for me when I think about domestic violence. I think about, you know, homes and women, you know, in their homes and their husbands yeah. coming home and, you know, but we don't think about it in terms of their relationships, you know, with their peers and, you know, right. they may also be teenagers. And so I think the language around it probably needs to be expanded. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's good that you mentioned that because one of the um, 
two, actually, of the bills. There's a Senate bill and a House resolution that addresses that exact thing. So you're ahead of the curve. <laughs> Yay! For once. Now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's called the Domestic Violence and Stalking Victims Act of 2017. And so it amends the criminal code, the federal criminal code, to state that the term intimate partner includes a dating partner. Ooh. Um, Sorry, so, yeah. <laughs> to your point, I mean, it's such a good point. It's such a good critique of language because all things are different than they were when domestic violence, the term, became popular. Yeah. Everything is different. The way gender identification is different. Yeah. And, you know, we have all types of different ways of, of, of identifying people and their own identities and, and relationships are different. People aren't getting married, you know, if they don't want to. Sometimes they have life partners, so you have to say partner violence. And to your point, domestic just sounds like a house. Like it's happening in your house. If it's happening in your house, it's your business and it's not my concern. Yeah. So I think, you know, to your point with the language being expanded, when we're saying things like dating violence or intimate partner violence, you know, just being very specific that, yes, this is someone that you're romantically, intimately involved with, but taking out the domestic piece of it so that, you know, it doesn't have to be in the home. You know, it could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be physical. It could be emotional. It could be psychological. You know, I think it's such a good point you make because the language is everything. You know, especially with the different identities now. I know 50% of lesbian women experience wow. violent intimate partner violence. 50%. Wow. Whoa. I did not know that. That 50% they will in their lifetime. And then I think it's two in five gay or bisexual men are experiencing violence. So like, like I said, everything is different. Yeah. You know, back when in the 70s, we were talking about domestic violence, really, for the first time and identifying it as an, a national issue rather than a home issue. It was really nuclear. You know, it was, the, it was the man and the woman in the home and it was their house and then there was abuse and it was all contained. Yeah. And now we're talking about different types of relationships and we're talking about you know things that aren't in the home it could be in the dorm room you know it could be at work you know, it could be anywhere and so I am really excited that you said that because it's such a good point the word domestic even has like a, a connotation of it being private and we're all about making it not private anymore making it very public and making it a very community responsible community justice So tell me about your bulk bag project. What's your bulk bag project? Yes. Yeah, so one of the ways that, that I planned my escape from my marriage was by creating an escape bag. And it was really, it was really hard to do because what I would do is he would give me grocery money every week. We had one car. And so most of the time he would take the car to work. But when he, he hated grocery shopping. So when grocery shopping needed to be done, I had to do it. And he would give me the money. He would give me the keys to the car. And so I would go do the grocery shopping. So when I decided that I was going to try to get out, I would just take, like, if you give me a hundred dollars, I would take $10 from the grocery money and just kind of stash it away. Or I would go to the mini toiletry aisle. Um, you know, that you travel, maybe, what do they yeah. call it? Travel, you know, the one with the little things. I would mm -hmm. go to the little things aisle and, you know, buy some of those. And so what I started to do was create a bag with toiletry items, you know, deodorant, toothpaste, toothbrush, um, just whatever I would need if for any reason I had to run, you know, and I wanted to have some sort of you know, dignity the next day. I think that's really important when it comes to survivors, just, you know, having dignity, being able to take a shower and wash your hair and brush your teeth and have deodorant, participate, you know, in society. I think that's really important. And I wanted to be able to do that. And so I just created this bag. I put a few articles of clothing in there. I made copies of my driver's license and things like that and put that in there. Keys, just put them in there. So basically it was just an escape bag. And that is what I took with me when I, when I left and went to the domestic violence shelter. And so a few years ago, right after Y State happened, I was just kind of thinking about some way that I could contribute something more than just my story, contribute something that would, you know, directly affect the lives of people who um, were a part of my community now, people online, people I didn't know yet. And so I decided to create the Bolt Bag. And so Bolt, B-O-L-T, just is, you know, bolt you need yeah. run out of the door when you run out of his situation and it, all it is is a bag filled with toiletry items and um you know sometimes there's gift cards in there but like baby wipes if you let me know you have a baby sand sanitizer toothbrush toothpaste deodorant, things like that and so um 
I created that and I send them out to whoever wants them. So a victim of violence. I think last year I sent probably about 300 out. Wow. The year before, 200, 250. The first year, there was less, which it's increased year by year. But I send them out to whoever needs them. I don't ask questions. Not asking questions is really important to me. Um, a lot of times when you seek services, you have to give a lot of identifying information. Yeah. By law, really, because a lot of people receive funding you know, from different sources, especially federal funding. And there are certain things that you have to, you know, know and and put on paper so you can do reporting. I didn't want any of that. I don't want anyone to have to tell me their name or who they are or their last for their social or their date of birth or their phone number or anything. I just want you to ask for something and and we give it to you and then you go. And we never have to know who we we were. I don't have to know you. We don't have to talk about it the next day. And so the the Bold Bear Project was designed for that. It was designed for in It was designed as like a quick stopgap. It was, it's it's a crisis intervention. And so that's what I do. A lot of people reach out in different ways, sometimes through Facebook, sometimes through, most of the time through the website. Um, There's a form there. And all I ask for is a safe mailing address. It has to be a safe one. That could be work. That could be a parent's house. That could be, you know, a sibling's house, a friend's house, a post office box, anywhere that it can be sent that you will be able to access it, but that your abuser won't be able to access it. And any name, you can give me an alias. It just could be John Doe, could be, yeah. you know, Jane Doe, Jim Doe, whatever you want. And, and I send it there and that's it. And so I have only had maybe like a few, three or four people come back around and, you know, let me know who they were and to talk about what happened. But most of the time, the hundreds and hundreds of people who receive best, I don't know who they are and I want it that way. I don't want them to feel like they have to tell me anything about them or their situation in order to receive help. Because I think that's a reason that some people don't seek help is because they want to be anonymous. And so I just wanted to provide something for people who want to be anonymous. Um and that's the Bay project. Yeah. So, I mean, do you send these out yourself? I do. Yeah. I do. So it's yeah, my, me or my mom. It's, oh. it's one of the one of the two of us. We fund it ourselves. So most serious? of the time, it's yeah. Oh, well, we've gotten um, a lot of times people will donate just when they hear about it, and that's always a blessing. I really enjoy that. But it's one of those things where whether we get donations or funding or not is still going to happen. I have a certain percentage of my own paycheck that I set aside for it, and sometimes we can only send out. 10 or 20 a month or, you know, 10 a month or five next month or 30 the next month. But yeah, so we funded ourselves. I have all the bolt bags in storage. Um, we create bolt bags and I put them in storage. Some of them are in my living room. <laughs> They're everywhere. They're everywhere. But yeah, so um, it's something that is really impactful for me, even though it's something that I'm doing. It helps me in two ways. It helps me see patterns. Um, one year there was a whole lot of boat bag activity in Utah, um, which seemed random at first until I think like six months later, an article came out about the increase of domestic violence in Utah. And then it made sense, right? Because I'm sending all these out there. So it helps me see patterns, but, um, it also, I think keeps me connected to victims in a way that doesn't require anything on either of our parts, except that one shipment. I I love that. I love the fact that you know, it's anonymous. I love the fact that it's quick. I love the fact that it's necessary. I think, you know, I really can't understand how difficult it was for me to make that bag myself because I was always afraid he'd find it or he'd notice, you know, that money was gone. I don't want anyone else to have to go through that. I don't want you to have to figure out how, you know, to make your bag, to make your escape bag and worry about whether or not it's going to be found and worry about whether or not, um, you know, money is going to come up missing and and your abuser is going to notice. I don't want you to have to worry about that because, you have so many other things to worry about, yeah. right? Like this is one small thing that you won't have to worry about. But the next day when you have those items and you know that you can wash your face, you know, and, and smell nice and, yeah. you know, put on newer clothes. I think that's important. I think, you know, a lot of times we talk about domestic violence victims and it's all about, okay, they just need a bed and a pillow and that's it. We got them in the bed and, and it's, they're good now. They're fine. I like to, to smell yeah. nice. You know, I like to feel good. I like to have clean teeth, you know, and just because I'm in a shelter or somewhere that I wasn't before the night before doesn't mean I don't deserve those things. It doesn't mean I don't deserve the dignity of, of smelling good and feeling good about myself. And so that's really what it's all about. You know, I think that it's, it's something that was important to me and I 
hope that it's it's valuable to to this to someone else. How can we help you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I like I love to receive items themselves because I can just throw them in bags and put them in storage. So like mini toiletry items, they have to be pretty small because the bags are only about like nine by twelve. They're really small and they have like straps on them. And I have a P.O. box on my website, BeverlyGooden.com. Donating is fine, too. Um, the LMA Foundation has its own P.O. box, so um, that's completely separate. But mostly, I think I'm, I'm okay now. I have the shipping covered. I have items covered. I think mostly it's just getting the word out because I don't know that as many people know about the Boat Bag Project as could. And I think that we could be sending more bags out to more people they just don't know it exists. Yeah. So I think just spreading the word is something that's really important. I will spread the word. Thank you. <laughs> you <laughs> Thank you. The, you're the real deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Seriously. So what about legislation? Are there any bills that are coming uh, down the pike that we should watch out for? Yes. So um, I mentioned before the Domestic Violence and Stalking Victims Act of 2017. So that's actually, I want to give out the numbers. It's Senate Bill 1539 and House Resolution 2670. They're identical. They're just in both. And essentially it is, you know, the bill amending the criminal code to state that the term intimate partner includes a dating partner. It also makes it a crime to sell or dispose of a firearm to someone who's been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of stalking. So I think that's really important too. The second one is the um, House Resolution 1963 and it's the Fair Housing for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Survivors Act of 2017. And that was introduced by Debbie Wasserman. There's been no movement in the House since May 2017 on it, so I'm not exactly sure where it stands. But that bill amends the Fair Housing Act to prohibit discrimination against survivors of domestic violence in the sale or rental of housing, which is really a big deal because a lot of times domestic violence can be considered a nuisance. And a lot of landlords will deny applications of survivors of victims because they think it's just going to bring nuisance to the community. And they can't do that. I mean, because (laughs) victims and survivors need somewhere to live. And so I think that bill is really important because it specifically states you can't discriminate on the basis of someone surviving domestic violence or sexual assault and you can't not rent to them because they've experienced that. What's the one thing that you want people to know about domestic violence victims? That's a good question. Um, And I hope this answer isn't too uh, sad. But I think it's important to know that domestic violence victims specifically experience lifelong trauma. So if you know someone, if you're in relationships with someone or if you're a friend or family member of someone who has experienced domestic violence, their life is forever changed. And learning how to uh, speak to them, you know, be around them, be in community with them, be in a relationship with them can be really challenging at first. But I think it's worth it. I think, you know, we don't talk enough about how trauma rewires the brain. You know, for for me specifically, having experienced domestic violence, having Mm -hmm. been in that relationship, everything is different for me now. Before I was one person, now I'm a different person. I don't fight, I flight. You know, I hypo-react to all kinds of situations that my brain will read as dangerous, even if it's not dangerous. So for me, in relationships, if I sense that, that there's an emotionally high situation, I will withdraw. That's just what happens. I withdraw. I sense danger. And so it can be really difficult for people, you know, who date me, <laughs> you know, or people that I just know in general. If someone makes a really sudden movement yeah. around me, I will flinch because I don't know what that movement means. I don't know what comes after that. I just don't know. I um, mean, I think it's important to remember that about people who have experienced domestic violence, that their lives have been forever changed, that they've experienced a trauma, a very violent situation that is unlike really any other situation. And so we should, as people who love them, as people who care about them, really handle them with care and really let them lead the way in, in, in intensity and in speed of whatever relationship dynamic we have, whether it's romantic, whether it's friendship, whether it's family. And I think that's really important to know. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah. You know, actually, you reminded me when you said that on the panel, I'd forgotten that you said that. And, you know, I have people in my life, you know, who aren't really open about what's happened to them in their past, but they have really mm. similar reactions. There's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety sometimes and their reactions that just yeah. come out of nowhere. And you reminded me that we need to always hold empathy. We mm. always have empathy yes. for that. 
for that experience, right? Because it's, it's, I don't know, it's a really hard thing to be on the other end of that, mm. right? Especially if, if you aren't causing harm to a person, but they're suddenly fearful. Yes. Right? And instead of, instead of being defensive, to have empathy. Yeah. I mean, you, you've been hitting the nail on the head this whole, <laughs> this whole conversation. <laughs> but yes, I mean, empathy, I think there's something to be said for someone choosing not to be defensive, but choosing instead to care you know, to, to ask questions about what's going on. I've dated just a few people since I've been divorced from my ex-husband. Some of them couldn't quite understand why I reacted the way I did. Some of them were very empathetic about the situation. And I think it just takes understanding. You know, it takes knowing that you are, are dealing with someone who was systematically torn down, but not only systematically torn down, harmed physically. You know, someone that they loved and someone that they trusted may have tried to kill them more than once, you know, and what that does to your brain, you know, to, to your actual brain, to your actual reactions is different than than what might happen if you if you just experienced a breakup and there was no danger involved and there was no violence involved. And, you know, you're, you're sad about it, but you go on to, to love again. It's completely different for someone with domestic violence. Everything has changed. You don't know who to trust. Someone that you love hurt you. They were different in the beginning and then they suddenly changed and they said they would stop and they didn't stop. So, I mean, just think of trust there. How do you rebuild trust? You know, you have to have a lot of therapy and a lot of compassion. And so I just wanted to say that because I think, you know, a lot of times when I'm, you know, in survivor circles or when I'm, you know, listening to stories about domestic violence or here or reading about them, we talk about healing and we talk about therapy and all of those things are necessary. And we talk about, you know, um, compassion and that's also necessary. But I think it's really important to know and understand that handling someone that has experienced domestic violence with care is essential to maintaining a relationship with them if you want to. It has to be a very intentional act. It takes a lot of maturity, you know, and it takes a lot of understanding. But I think it's it's something that, that's worth it. And I hope that more people can do it. Yeah. Oh, it's so powerful. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, Beth, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I thank love you. this conversation. <laughs> no, I did too. I really did. I, you know, I think talking to you, even from the day we met, I knew that you were someone that I wanted to be friends with. Aww. You know, someone that I wanted to know. I just think, you know, just your spirit and your intelligence and your kindness and just, you know, the way that you're not afraid to challenge is just something that's inspirational to me. And so thank you for having me on. I'm going to cry. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you. I, so thank you. Okay. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the Electorette. Visit us at electorette.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The Electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorette. And until next time, keep up the good fight.